Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Turning over a page of madness for 100 years. <laughs> Hello everybody and welcome. It is another episode of HV. I am your co-ghost John joined as ever, by my good friend and comrade and co-ghost Ash. How are you doing, Ash? I am pretty incredible. It is a page of good vibes over here. Yeah, it is a good vibes kind of day. It is a good vibes kind of day. We are, we're talking about uh, a super interesting movie. Uh, but before we get into uh, what is genuinely an incredible piece of cinematic history quick word from our sponsors this program was made possible by contributions from listeners like you go to patreon.com slash horror vanguard and get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive content thank you you'll forgive me if i don't stay around to watch i just can't cope with freaky stuff Uh, as you are no doubt aware from looking at the episode of this, the episode of this title, the title of this episode, um, we are talking about uh, a landmark piece of horror filmmaking from 1926, the avant-garde, a page of madness. Now, Normally, you know, normally we don't do like super mainstream stuff that probably everybody has seen. So, you know, I don't even know if I should ask you to do this, Ash, but would you mind for, for maybe the like the three people who have not somehow managed to avoid seeing A Page of Madness, could you explain what it's all about? Yeah, ever, ever since this got the official release as part of the MCU... I, I yeah. think everyone has been talking about A Page of Madness and what they expect the Hawkeye reveal at the end to mean for Phase 5. Yeah, the, the mid-credit scene, eh, I, I, I didn't love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, what are we doing? What are we doing? This, we just, just for, for a brief moment there, we like lost our phase sync with, with our reality and like dipped <laughs> into another dimension where we have like an MCU fandom podcast. Let's Let's not do that. <laughs> let's never let's never do that again <laughs> oh cu cu cursed vibes i don't know what just happened <laughs> right yeah yeah the vibe the vibes just changed immediately let me let me try let me try to do like a, a vibe revival here okay we lose everything over time our memories fade like a worn out film reel we lose the tiny pieces of our lives with each move each change of circumstance and our histories therein are written as much by what remains as what does not. Most of Japanese silent film is totally lost. It's likely that these titles are also irrecoverable. We live in a world where their evidence is nothing more than echoes and ghosts. Posters, playbills, lists and trade catalogs are all that remain. They stand in as a potter's field filled with nameless graves for these films. It's easy to imagine this as being the impact of our history. But this was less than a hundred years ago. This process isn't historic, but it is ongoing. Our own culture, events, and media are likewise being turned into dust before our eyes. What happens when the servers shut down? The abandonware piles up, and the last VCR seizes up and dies. Our culture is the graveyard of its own history. This process isn't inevitable. It is not the necessary and true arc of history. It is a byproduct of a world that prioritizes infinite growth and the new over a shared history. We could cherish our past if only we could arrest the system for just a moment. The power to lift our collective memories from the grindstone of profit is within our hands, if only we have the will to call upon it. All that was lost will be found again. Join us for a discussion of Tiansuke Kunigasa's A Page of Madness. Uh, 
I, 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 I really love that. And I think maybe that's a place to start, right? We're, we're watching, I think this is, I'm not sure, but I think this is the oldest film that we've ever done on the show uh, in terms of when it was, when it was made. And there is something kind of uh, melancholic really about watching cinema that is uh, now almost a hundred years old because so much of the very foundational first experiments with um, moving images are now, you know, dust, have decayed into nothing and are, are completely gone. And maybe all that remains of them is um, a few production stills or maybe even a poster. So uh, I don't know. What, what do you think about that? You know, what do you think about the kind of impermanence of of watching some... This is, you know, the, there's a kind of strange feeling of watching something which is so kind of integral to the art form that we both love but is also so deeply fragile after persisting for so long yeah and this is something that it's interesting to struggle with as people who both appreciate the art of cinematography and also a a, like historic and academic perspective of it um because some of this is essential to the form right like film stock is not an eternal and very durable format film stock is uh very fragile and occasionally literally explosive mm-hmm. yeah uh, so it's very easy to accidentally destroy a bunch of rare and priceless film um but i think another part of this is recognizing that the way that the film industry is set up there's like there's almost nothing designed to preserve these films, especially when they don't have uh, some kind of like latent market value, right? Like there, there's not a good market for a page of madness, you know, like this, this is the perfect film for criterion. And that's, that's kind of it right now. You know, the, you know, a, a page of madness worldwide uh, theater re-release. I don't think it's something people are going to be lining up for anytime soon. And and we're talking about a page of madness right now, which is it's secured its place in history, uh, partly because of its rediscovery, and then it's modern. It, in modern times, it's been adopted by by cinephiles as a high water mark. But there are countless, countless other films that are just dissolving right now in offices and vaults and boxes and attics, and there is no apparatus to defend this history. I, I think this is actually a really important point and a kind of tragic one because it 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 highlights really neatly, I think, the integrative relationship between cultural production and capitalist distribution. You know, uh it's 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 a high art form, actually, and the, the technical and artistic innovation that films like a page of madness and you know, I I'll I'll be honest, the dozens of films, you know, hundreds of films from that era that I'm probably never gonna get to see um is is genuinely amazing but it is locked into this system which demands uh the extraction of surplus value and demands a, an easily uh consumable commodity that can be sold and marketed to the widest demographic possible and i i i think it's well worth underscoring that that we tend to think now that our our cultural production is a lot more secure um you know mm-hmm. um it, it it's shot on it's it's often digital it doesn't corrode film stock no longer will explode or or easily catch on fire if it's stored incorrectly but it's still locked into these uh you know film studios have vaults full of reels which will never see the light of day and there is something so kind of bleak about that knowing that you know thousands tens of thousands of people have worked on these films and they might never kind of re-emerge and I think I think that's the thing worth highlighting here. At least one of the things worth highlighting here is that like all of these films are going to just turn to dust in some warehouse because there's no place in the profit motive for them. You know, like like these these there's no market for these films, and and this is this is as true for movies as it is for music and literature. You know, like all all art is kind of subsumed into this framework where like. Unless you have like a a gigantic grift like the Disney vault set up 
and even that is only designed to protect a sliver of cinema and it doesn't really protect anything it just allows a company to constantly recycle the same couple movies over and over again but like there's this this doesn't have to be the case right like there there could easily be an art easily accessible archive digital or otherwise containing the the sum total history of human cinema you know freely accessible to everyone easily and readily accessible to everyone except there's no money in that kind of endeavor right like to do something like that in the profit motive it would be crushingly expensive and you'd wind up with worse netflix yeah and 100 percent. I, I think that that is just a real uh, uh, i guess i guess in the grand scheme of things maybe a little minor but an incredibly scathing condemnation of the way that art can operate under capitalism right it is so painfully constrained and this isn't just about like wanting to go watch some obscure cinema from the 20s or something just for kicks right this is about like knowing the shared history of this art form and realizing that so much of that history is irrecoverably lost yeah it's yeah i i think this is something that's really important to drive home actually um which as as a kind of and an integral part of any sort of serious leftist political project in regards to culture is thinking about how do we relate to culture historically you know a culture is not just a a record of capitalist production or a reflection of modes of production although it totally is but you know uh people like raymond williams or e.p thompson have written for for decades wrote for decades about the importance and centrality of culture as a mode of and record of life you know it, they they are the the product of literally thousands of people um who work and strive together towards a particular not necessarily commercial but aesthetic purpose and so like i say this about kind of academic research that people should absolutely build their own archives you know you should absolutely have like I have like multiple USBs which are just full of like scans of books and journal articles and and PDFs uh, because I don't know when I might lose access to stuff. And I I think you're right. I think it's absolutely important that we have a, a similar awareness of the contingency of our access to so much culture when it's you know ensconced behind massive studio paywalls and intellectual property law. And and to go to go back to something that you said a few minutes ago that like. We operate under the illusion today that digital media is somehow protected from this. You know that like a hundred years from now, let alone 10 years from now, uh, historians and researchers and, and just kind of lay people who are interested could like browse the sum totality of YouTube for artistic and research and, and pleasure purposes. But like digital media is ultimately still physical, right? Like it's ultimately still rooted on physical devices and physical storage. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like these are, these are hard drives. These are solid state drives. These are computers. These are server farms, right? This is, this is physical infrastructure that is necessary for sustaining digital media. And that physical structures or those physical structures are also impermanent and they're also still ensconced in the profit motive. You know, if we if we reach a point in time where maintaining YouTube servers is no longer financially viable, like say goodbye to the entirety of what has been posted on YouTube. You know, like there if there's no profit motive to defend that material, it's just gone. Yeah. You know, if if like Google falls one day and gets bought out by some other company, they might scrap a huge section of YouTube servers or do a reset or something like digital digital media is infinitely more fragile we just don't often experience its total collapse sure like it's it's silly to think of like myspace being gone as an archival problem but there's a huge chunk of like internet culture and internet history that's kind of like poorly sustained in some digital archives yeah i mean a really a really obvious example would be um k-punk mm -hmm. you know like which recently had to go through a redesign to basically save stuff. It's already littered with dead links and mm -hmm. stuff that doesn't work anymore. Uh, and this was maybe uh, one of the most kind of interesting critical and theoretical spaces on the British left for like a decade in, in the 2000s. 
Um, and like this, this links into a bigger problem. I, I feel I, I think this might take us a little bit off topic, but I think it's important, which is that we tend to abstract or make abstract the capitalist mode of production when so much of exchange is virtual, right? You don't even need to carry cash anymore. You, you don't even need to remember your card number anymore. Uh, but we have seen like this week that really this great global fluid, completely seamless network can be uh, rendered so physical by just putting a big ship sideways in the middle of the Suez Canal, <laughs> and, <laughs> which which is almost certainly going to cause massive disruption to global supply chains. So it's like we think we think of these things as kind of intangible and and kind of. Um, you know, digital and virtual and, and therefore secure. But as you pointed out, it's all physical infrastructure that undergirds it. So I guess what we're trying to say is that the history of cinema is irreducibly haunted. <laughs> that, that is completely true. And in our, in our, like, our, our, our current system is that, that ghost weaves its way through everything that we're experiencing. I mean, like not to, not to keep the off topic train going, but what you just said reminded me of my favorite moment in Psycho Gorman, the last movie we talked about. And it's when he, he grabs the TV and like he, he says something like, like, I pray to the spirits of the Electroverse. And then like is able to like send, send a message into outer space using an old tube television. Mm-hmm. And like that, that explicit acknowledgement that there's something like haunted about our digital infrastructure I think is is incredibly important here because the way I accessed a page of madness is because it's on YouTube, you know, and uh, it's also yeah, on s- several other digital archives, right? Like there are several other uh, classic and retro and silent film websites where you can find a page of madness, but like it, it, there are so many things that, that could take those websites down, right? Some company buys the copyright to something and then they're nuked from orbit uh, whatever servers are holding them up or bought by another company and then completely destroyed, you know, like maybe one day certain types of internet connection connections are no longer profitable and then are completely abandoned. And then there's like entire internet dead zones. Like this is physical. There's a physicality to this. There's a materiality to this. And that, that connects directly in to this long and complicated history. And it also speaks to a lot of the alienation we experience, right? Like, I really liked your comment about, like, transactions being digital now, right? Like, that's just further alienation, you know? And, like, you know, what, like, 20 guys on a on a oversized boat in the Suez Canal making an oopsie have, like, you know, like, jammed the entire global economy, for the foreseeable future because it's re- it turns out it's really hard to get these giant boats unstuck who would have guessed like here we are yeah. in, our, in our page of madness episode talking about digital the, the physicality of digital infrastructure and the current uh ever, evergreen suez canal uh boat fun zone <laughs> um but those things are those things are connected um but you're right. Maybe we should. Maybe we should circle back. Let's talk about. Let's. Talk about <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for for our archival chat hour and current events <laughs> section. Uh, Twenty <laughs> minutes into this episode, we are now going to talk about the movie. We'll now talk about 1926's A Page of Madness, um, which I, I honestly think is a genuinely remarkable thing. Oh, um, I love this movie to death. It is so good. Uh. Should we should we do the thing that we've been doing lately, where we kind of do a little bit of kind of formalist criticism, things that things that we like to kind of technical aspects of the film? Yes, let's go to the uh, formalist for talking points. <laughs> where would where would you like to start? Um, well, one of the thing one of the things I want to start with is that like, so so this movie is from the early twenties, and then it was lost. Um, it was it was it was a kind of a smash hit when it was initially released in Japan. Um, at the time, so in, pre- in pre-war Japan, there were two uh, kinds of movie theaters. There were movie theaters that played Japanese films and movie theaters that played international films. Mm-hmm. Um, a Page of Madness was so weird and different and new 
that it was uh, forced to play in the uh, foreign film theaters because they didn't think it would fit very well in the traditional Japanese theater houses. Uh, and then like like a lot of movies that get that initial treatment from marketing, uh, it becomes a rave hit. And then it's lost for like 40 something years uh, until the director finds it in a box <laughs> one day. Um, only only roughly 70% of the original film survives to this day. Um, the The runtime used to be a solid 30 minutes longer than it is which adds a little bit to the surrealism of watching it because there are, that's a significant amount of information to lose. Yeah. Um, and it is very much a product of the twenties, right? It's, uh, it's tied up in, uh, the, the kind of, I mean, you know, the, the, the film community in Japan was, was, was deeply aware of artistic movements, all across the world of things like Dadaism, of surrealism, uh, of German expressionism in cinema. And it, cinema was massive, was quickly becoming a very globalized industry. So it isn't a surprise that these, these ideas are, were kind of mingling in the kind of artistic milieu of the time. Uh, so it's, the film is widely seen as a product of the, um, of a, uh, the Japanese school, the school of new perceptions. There is, uh, is is how it would translate into English, which is an attempt to get away from what was seen as a kind of very formal and theatrical style, mm-hmm. uh, rooted in 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 traditional Japanese theatre style um, of, of storytelling, and towards something that gave you access to the kind of inner uh, naturalist psychology of the individual. And uh, it is to me what's so striking about this film is that the the degree to which it, that is successful in a film where you where you have literally no dialogue or rather no audible dialogue for the, or no audible narration for the audience to listen to and everything has to be told pr- through images alone that that i think is a really interesting point for a couple of reasons and two of them are like this movie very adeptly takes apart traditional japanese theater uh what with um one one of the people incarcerated in the asylum being just kind of like an expert and traditional dancer who has like a persistent fantasy that they're like a high society royal dancer um, and and the close of the film, which we'll get to later when we get to like the uh, psychoanalytic discourse on masks, but like those are those are like classic Japanese no theater masks, and like no theater was like a, a little bit of a high society thing, right? So he's he's handing out these icons of high society art to some of the lowest people on the societal rungs. So it's a it's a very very deft. Uh, like surgical takedown of of the transition into uh, the school of new perceptions, and the other thing that I think is really interesting is like, oh my god, not to take us back to the conversation we were just having, <laughs> but um, so one of the things that it's hard to understand about silent films today because we we don't understand silent films very well, but because of how we watch them, um. If you would have seen this movie in theaters in the moment, it would have had a live or- uh, orchestral score. Yep. Um, and it would have also had a Benshi. Yeah. And uh, Benshis were narrators, uh, um, but not narrators. Narrator really undersells what they were doing. Like, this was a high art. Uh, Benshis were, were as famous as actors, right? And they, they commanded that same kind of air of uh, celebrity. You know, and it was it was a very practiced craft of narration. And so there were like all of the moments in this movie where people are talking, right? The Benchy would be narrating, you know, and so there there are no um you know, like like uh cards intra throughout the movie that give us lines of dialogue or set up anything because that would have been the Benchy's job. And so it's it's interesting, and like a lot of silent movies would have had these, right? Even even in uh Europe and the United States, a lot of really silent movies had narrators. And it's it's always been interesting to me that like, like I've seen I've seen a bunch of silent movies with uh, a live orchestra. You know that's a pretty popular feature at film festivals. Um, but I have yet to see a silent movie that attempts to recreate a a benchy or a live narration. 
and I, I think it's it's interesting how that colors our our perception and allows us to like insert ourselves into the film perhaps a little more than if there would be like a narrator track option. Yeah, I I I, I agree with you that narration is not quite the right word for what they were doing. The way um, I read one um, uh, film critic describe it was sort of like critical exposition. Mm-hmm. So it, it isn't like they're just describing what's happening. They are kind of connecting the images. Yeah. You know, so they're providing another way of understanding the relationship between the images. And I think increasingly we don't have that because it's now assumed that the audience uh, who has grown up with decades upon decades and decades of of moving images being being thematically and, and uh, structurally connected in order to tell a story is not as innovative anymore. But I totally agree that I would think it would be super interesting to have that extra level to the artistic experience of being like, okay, what what's your critical exposition of what's happening in front of us? I think that would be a really cool thing. I, I think I think what we're getting at here is that talkies destroyed the craft of cinema. And <laughs> if if you're a talkie fan, you really have to level up your game here. Uh, I think what we're also uh, getting at is um, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000's uh, narration <laughs> over B-movies is the heir to the to the banshee of, of the 1920s Japanese silent cinema. That you you just you just like brought into existence the seed of a devastatingly powerful academic article. <laughs> uh, whoever, if if you're out there in listener land and you write that, for the love of God, send it to us. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> that 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 is the kind of like, uh, uh, absolutely like like saccharin hallucinogenic brain poison that I need streaming into me constantly. <laughs> But no, I think I think like MST3K is an interesting thing to bring up here because like 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 the figure of the Benchy is in a lot of sense an actor who is just physically present and not on screen. Yeah, exactly. Which which in a lot of sense is what like MST3K and riff tracks and those kind of like I know MST3K wasn't a live experience, but now like all of the uh, creators, they have cinematic Titanic and riff tracks and they do all kinds of live shows. But like that, that is the a little bit of the legacy of the history we're working with here. Um, and it, it, it kind of establishes that the critical exposition of a film is part of the art of film itself, which means that anyone who thinks that like describing a, a film and then dinging every time there's a plot hole doesn't un- <laughs> does not understand what it means to be a critical part of that audience because that is where the art is made and if that's all your review if that's all your criticism is what you are doing is driving a stake right through the artistic attempt that's happening in front of you in order to make yourself look good Right. If if movie criticism is to be anything worth having, it should be something that grows the art, you know, mm. and that creates in and of itself. Right. And like it, it, not to be pretentious, but like that you, you can go infinite directions with that statement and do infinite creative, funny, academic combinations of those things different fields different focuses like there are so many paths that you can take down that but if the whole point of criticism is to be superior to the art form like uh uh you 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 tire me into the volcano with you (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah uh, stay tuned for our upcoming bonus episode uh, because we've been talking about mst3k and all of those guys so stay tuned for a bonus episode on the ice cream bunny uh, one of the most horrific uh, <laughs> blood-curdling films that has ever been released. Um, <laughs> that is actually that is actually a really good idea for a bonus episode. <laughs> I just willed uh, that honestly, one into existence. Uh, honestly, I was like, oh, he's just he's just kidding. And then I was like, oh, but actually, yeah, we should do that uh, for patrons only. You know, just. <laughs> Um, but yeah, in the context of this film, then let's 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 kind of get into some into some of the discourse. Um, 
And what's really interesting to me is that I've I've been thinking a lot about this in, ever since we watched um, <clears throat> Pan's Labyrinth, uh, and it's something that Mark Kermode says about about the Devil's Backbone, uh, the kind of partner film uh, by Del Toro to A Labyrinto del Fano, which is that the best horror films are also tragedies. Horror films are not necessarily just about fear. Horror films are about grief, um, which I, I think is is very true. I'm sure people listening to this would, would probably agree with that. Um, and it thus can be a kind of useful way of processing uh, mourning, you know, a loss, a trauma of some kind. And I think that's true for a lot of people who watch horror movies. Um, and I think it's true of this film, that this film is not necessarily just about fear. This is a film about grief and it's about uh, the access to that grief that film can grant. What do you think? I think that's fantastic. And I think that's completely correct. You know, like gr- grief and fear are so deeply interwoven with each other that it's it's often difficult to pull those fabrics apart. You know, you start pulling on one string and immediately these, these others pull up. And a, a page of madness is, I think you're 100% right, it's it's a horror film in the extent that grief is inherently something that inspires fear. Yeah. Yeah, I think so because to mourn something is to be aware of both the contingency of what's been lost and the 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 kind of what Freud would call the ego damage that losing that thing has done. I yeah, um, I'm really glad that you brought up ego damage because a part of a part of what's lost when things are lost is a part of ourselves. Yeah, completely. You know, if if uh, someone someone close to you passes away or for for other various reasons is no longer part of your life, like that is a piece of you is cleft off with them. A piece of how the pattern of your existence operates goes away as well. And and that is as terrifying as death because it is a fractal uh, manifestation of it. Completely, and it, and in the context of this film, it's like even if someone is not is 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 still living, but maybe they are in a very altered state. That they're, they're, they're completely removed from you, uh, which is the kind of central relationship between the custodian, uh, played by um, Masao Inoue with the, his wonderful kind of lined face, which the camera spends so much time kind of focusing on and he's incredibly expressive. Uh, and the custodian's wife, the janitor's wife, who is now uh, an inmate or patient at this uh, psychiatric facility. Um, and th- like the the relationship between them is is actually really, I think really powerful precisely because there is this unbridgeable gap between them that's been caused by his actions so he's 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 mourning the loss of something but the loss is not kind of total you know because it's you know she's right there but she's also completely unreachable and and those scenes are some of the most devastating scenes in the movie you know when he's so he, he takes the job as a custodian as a way to still have a connection to his wife um, the the doctors at the asylum do not know they have that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this is this is his only way of of hanging on to that. And one of the things that makes that so powerful for me is that like this movie is nearly a hundred years old, and like a lot of the psychological apparatus has not moved an inch. You know, it is at a glacial pace that, that the liberation and progress is made in the sphere of mental health. And like, it's it's just so unnerving watching this film and knowing that a lot of what's going on in the context of this movie still 100% unchangeably exists today. Yeah. Yeah. In, um, in, in watching this movie, I don't know if you watched this as well, but I found basically through the YouTube algorithm, what I think is like a local TV station did a discussion of this film like about 30 years ago between three between three academics from New York. Um, I think I sent I think I sent you the clip. Did you have a chance mm-hmm. to watch it? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's super interesting because they read it in very um, psychoanalytic terms and there's one of them who says that 
there are generally three ways in which um, uh, psychiatry is presented in these films. So you have uh, the the mad doctor who is just as bad as as the patients. So that would be something like uh, Doctor Calgary. You have the 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 uh, so you have Doctor Evil. You have the doctor who's a kind of like hippie anti psychiatry psychiatrist, uh, and you also have the doctor who is actually operating within the lines of psych of psycho analysis, right? So it'd be a therapist and um, an an analyst and and an an analyst and patient relationship. Um, and he says that the the depiction of psychiatry in this film is quite good. And I was sort of like, really? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it, isn't it kind of horrifying still? So when when I watched that and when he called it good, I I took that to mean accurate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. uh, But uh, I'm like, yeah, it, it is good in a sense that it's showing how fucking monstrous it can be. Um, and it's not a surprise that, right, um, you know, the, the analogous film from around the same time would be The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary. There's the famous um, uh, book by the critic Siegfried Krakauer from Caligari to Hitler, which traces this desire for the kind of authoritarian figure of the doctor who will make everything right to be a kind of cultural harbinger of, of fascism. Um and there's definitely that same kind of authoritarian streak. You know, there's lots of bowing and scraping when the, the janitor, the custodian, is is being scolded by this doctor. Um, there's a very rigid class hierarchy at stake. You know, um, what do you think? So the class, class in this is really, really interesting for me because a lot of it translates... It's like like again like this just literally one to one translates to what is going on right now in like England in the United States right like if if you've got the money your loved ones experiencing severe psychological traumas uh they're going to be all right if you've got the money they they can stay in in relative safety and opulent treatment facilities the less the the less money you have, the less class position you have, uh, it it just becomes another layer of prison, right? Like, in a lot of people struggling with like pretty severe mental health problems, like, just get subsumed into the prison industrial complex here in the United States, right? And like, that is something that you really feel in this movie because this janitor is forced uh to take this job to to be so subservient to to just retain a relationship with his wife and and we we find out in the course of the film the extent of his uh responsibility uh it turns out that he is he is an absent uh husband he he goes away to sea mm-hmm. uh, as as a sailor um which we find out in it, like just the construction i just want to uh say that the kind of editing uh in transitions between shots for something that was made in 1926 is genuinely mind-blowing in the clarity that they maintain throughout the story you know as soon as we get to the, those bits where you go you know immediately you're like oh this is the flashback uh and it's done with such very kind of careful choices in in shot selection edits transitions uh, techniques which had probably been worked out what a, a mere matter of years before and were still not conventions. So we find out how much responsibility this person has, um, and it turns out that he's not—he's not, he's not uh, a good—he's not a good husband. He doesn't seem to be no. a particular particularly involved father, except when he has this kind of dream or fantasy about a possible future. Um, uh, and yeah, I just—I just find it interesting that there's this really clear thematic interest in this notion of responsibility and family. Um, whilst at the same time, we have this other discourse of like grief and mourning and loss. Yeah. The, the, the family aspects are, are such a compelling angle of this film because we just get like, kind of like reason after reason for like how society 
one forces tremendous burdens onto families, you know, in, in supplantation of uh, things that should be handled by society writ large. And like also like the, the, the kind of personal failings that grow out of that soil in the, this movie, like that interplay is difficult and complicated. And this movie handles that interplay incredibly well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it, and not only does it kind of give more backstory to, to him, but manages to show uh, his wife in, in a much more sympathetic light. You know, the, the way that um, those with mental health issues are, tr- are treated in horror is often one of the biggest bugbears that I know both of us have talked about before um, as just being something that horror is not very good at generally. Um, but this, that, that flashback and that exploration of, of what actually happened between these two people um, doesn't sensationalize anything. It doesn't go, oh, well, this person who's been locked away, it's, it's dangerous or they're kind of intrinsically horrifying. Uh, it goes, no, this is something that's caused. It has social and material causes, which again, for a film from the 20s is actually, you know, kind of encouraging. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that's really interesting when you contrast this with like, I don't know, the ongoing history about of how horror as an art form treats people with mental illnesses, which is like horrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, and, and often very um, they're often made out to be kind of like ontologically horrifying, right? Mm hmm. You know, someone who is who has a mental illness is is kind of terrifying because there's something kind of wrong with them. When in fact we know, and this film points out that um, a huge amount of it is tied up in social relationships and and the social and material conditions under which you are, are forced to, to to live and endure. You know, we are who we are because, uh, in a very large way, because of the the social field that surrounds us. And if there is something kind of traumatic and and uh, hostile within that that gets reflected in how people's psychology and 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 mental world responds and i think we'll get onto this in a bit when we start talking about matt when we enter the mask zone right but like it, it is largely a function of the kind of dictates of a society that is driven exclusively by capitalism and the profit motive mm, yeah you know, like, I think we've talked about this on the show before in other contexts, but, like, there there is no space for healing in how society is currently structured. And there's also no space for difference. You know, like, the, those two things, like, if, the, if they can't be monetized, they just can't be. And I think that watching uh, A Page of Madness nearly 100 years after it was originally filmed and, and seeing just how well it hits today still really just kind of brings that home. Uh, which is the whole purpose of the clinic, right? That's the whole purpose of, of uh, the, 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 medical, the medicalization uh, and uh, contemporaneously the, the individualization of mental health. Oh, yeah. You know, this is, this, is, this is very much the kind of thing that Foucault writes about. This notion that historically, uh, the the those with uh, mental health issues, as they were derog- derogatorily referred to, the mad, um, had access to a kind of special knowledge, a a, a perhaps even a higher power. Um, whereas increasingly, it became a kind of medicalized problem that had to be isolated away from a quote unquote normalized society, and that is a a, a disciplinary. Um, exercise of power upon the body and a kind of constructive attempt to shape a particular vision of what society is. Absolutely. Yeah. Like these, these systems exist not independent of the society that made them, you know, like it is designed to get people back to work and in a state where they can go back to their job at an Amazon fulfillment center as quickly and as frequently as possible. It, the the goal isn't to make people better; it's to make people better workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and really, it, and really, we can get onto that when we come to the end, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> because because boy, did you just put the ending in a whole new light for me? <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so let's. Uh, do you want to dovetail into the mask zone? Uh, like, like, like Jim Carrey. Let us, <laughs> let us, let us enter the mask. Somebody try to stop me from entering the mask zone. Uh, sorry, that was awful. That was awful. What was I doing? Well, I would, yes. have, I would have never. Even I wouldn't have put uh, a page of madness in context with the mask starring Jim Carrey. <laughs> but both films are smoking, so yeah, I think it works. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about the masks. Um, so, so um, as the film unfolds, our custodian increasingly sees the boundaries between his uh, drudgery of the day-to-day existence. And a kind of fantasy or dream life begin to get more fluid, uh, and it becomes a little, a little more difficult for him, I think, to kind of really grasp what is, you know, real. And there is a scene towards the end of the film where he goes round all of the other patients slash inmates and puts on them uh, masks, masks with smiling faces. Um, what do you think about this scene? Um, well, I mean, like, let's just, let's get the, uh, hang on, there's an airplane overhead. Let's get the, uh, I, I guess, like, mask psychoanalysis 101 interpretation out of the way, where the mask is the, uh, uh, face that allows you to truly be yourself, uh, dot, dot, dot. So, okay, now that we, now that we've, like, cleared away the decks on on kind of like the reading that everyone gives to masks for always forever um i i think we can have a lot of fun with how this movie uses masks at the end uh because there's there's something there's a lot of like really interesting ways that these masks operate right because like i I like that you highlighted that the janitor is kind of like increasingly devoted to his fantasies Mm. and and there's a mirror for this inside the movie right and that's the dancer at the beginning Right, who is in, almost entirely devoted to this fantasy landscape, right? So, so what we're being kind of kind of led towards here is like how much space is there between this janitor and and that dancer, right? Like how much of this janitor's life is is just this massive psychological break to sustain a ridiculous fantasy, when when compared to someone who society would, uh, I guess, more frequently describe under those terms you know so we have this kind of like leveling of the playing field that continues towards the end of the middle uh towards the end of the movie um and then we and then the janitor distributes these like no theater masks amongst the inmates of the asylum and like it, it like pacifies this big conflict that's erupting right like it allows everybody to like be calm in a way and i think that there's there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting ways that we can take this series of events like what did what did you get out of that well i i think firstly like what what do masks do uh they enforce a kind of uniformity and a formalism and a structure of behavior so really the masks the masks are are a kind of consolidation of the power of the institution right yeah in, in a sense in, in a sense because they they encourage a certain kind of behavior and they encourage a kind of uniformity uh if if all of you are in a mask it's it's much harder to know who you are individually to act agentially and it's harder uh to to kind of form connections with others because everybody looks almost the same so it's almost uh, that you stare back into a mirror rather than you stare back into a sea of different faces with which you can form connections. What What about you? What did you think? Yeah, I, I think that I think the reading of like the the relative alienation caused there at the end I think is really important, and it also like how how the mask is used to pacify them. Yeah, y- you know, and like what the mask like like just that that raw functionality of the mask there at the end, right? Because in, in in so many respects, the the custodian's job is in and of itself a mask, right? It, it pacifies and normalizes him. It allows him to like slip into the system when in in reality, like he just wants to be a better partner and and to be there for someone who he has failed in the past. Yeah, 
you know, and so like it, as much as his fantasies get called into question here, we have to call into question like who who is wearing mask? What is mask? What mask do? You know, uh, like, so so you're, you're saying, wait a second, it's all masks. Always, always, has always was <laughs> yeah. giant, giant mask, giant no theater mask on the earth. Right there. But no, but I no actually, I, yeah, good gone. I, I was going to say, I agree. And actually, you know, if we're going to link this back to the discourses of psychoanalysis, which is interested in things like ego defense, fantasy as projection, the dream as, as masking some kind of kernel of the self, it, it, it is masks. It's masks all the way down. You know, his dreams of the the dowry and he, where he wins the prize that he gets to give to his daughter uh, or the dream that he could kind of like fight back against the authoritarian figure of the of the, the doctor, they all become these kind of projections. And that's what a mask is, right? It's a projection of a of an idealized uh, state um, that is literally embodied upon you. So, yeah, I, I, I actually think, you know, it's not just not just the kind of uh, a good a good bit but it's actually a kind of fundamental truth about what this film thinks about that division between you know the quote-unquote real uh and how one accesses it that i think is incredibly compelling you know because like part of the problem here is that like we have a situation with the human condition wherein like a significant part of our reality is shared you know mm-hmm. like like the vast majority of people share a a lived and real experience that is grounded in certain things but then there's a lot of our reality that is idiosyncratic right like it's a lot of it's freestanding and parallel and not mutually shared and what I think this ending does with these masks is kind of show us the terrifying lengths we would have to take to uh, uh, fuse and bind all of those parallel uh, points of our like idiosyncratic perceptions, right? Like, like it is this terrifying homogeneity that emerges and not people who are free to live as people. And it's even more interesting to me that it's no theater masks. You know, it's it's the mask of a high society art form. It is literally the mask of class that is the the vehicle for this transformation. I think then that that means we should probably think about how things end for the janitor, right? Yeah, yeah. So, what, what do you what do you think about the ending here? God, the, like in in the context that you've just set up, the ending is bleak. For yes, this the ending is very bleak. <laughs> Like, there is no change. There is no reunion. Reunion is now even further away, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, he loses his keys, uh, which we later see the doctor picking up and holding on to. So he can't even get close to uh, the the room stroke cell uh, in which his wife is kept. So there's there's this sort of, yeah, this real sort of melancholy, this real sense of like, not only have have things not changed for the better, but they've the the system in which he was enmeshed has actually gotten more controlling. Yes, and I think one of the most horrifying parts of this ending for me, and it's like this is a very powerful downer film. It, it's not some like there's some terrifying bits, right? Like when when the uh, inmate with the long hair bows to him. Yep. You know, at, at the end, as if to to signify that he is a father figure, um, but like. It's the fact that this movie ends essentially where it starts, except for now he's lost those keys, right? All yeah. of the events of this film sum up in him just being a tiny step further away from the things that he needs, right? In these real, like, grounded emotional and material needs that he has, right? Like, and it's not some epic, you know, like, I just kept imagining the worst American remake of A Page of Madness, where where it ends with like him in a straitjacket screaming as like some doctor trepans his frontal lobe or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is that's that's exactly how it would happen. Yeah, yeah, it would be over the top and terrible and ableist and deeply offensive. Um, but in this one, it's just it's just this subtle. It ends with him losing a set of keys and somebody bowing to him. And that that the softness of that blow is a thousand times more devastating than than the the terrible American reboot would be. 
Yeah, because all of that effort, you know, is is it's like it's an echo of an of a moment earlier in the film where he kind of tries to get her to leave, and she mm-hmm. doesn't want to go, and she doesn't want to go. Which is again, it's a really quick moment. It's really subtle, but it is it's it's like a it's it's like a stiletto knife, because in that refusal, there's so much about their relationship, about who she understands this person to be. Uh, a place, you know, where does she feel safe? You know, and then, uh, and those those are problems which are kind of almost can't be articulated. Uh, and then right at the end, all of his effort, all of his kind of work, all of his sort of striving to make amends uh, has got him literally nowhere. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's got him literally less than nowhere. <laughs> it has got him one step back inside of nowhere. Um, and of course, there's the there's the there's the concern that all of this is going to be passed on to his daughter, mm-hmm. um, which, again, uh, as a as a very kind of as a as a product of um, of of a very particular Japanese cultural scene and artistic moment, you know, uh, one of the people who's involved in writing this film would go on to be the first Japanese winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. Mm-hmm. There is something there is something about the inheritability of things which is a very classic gothic trope, right? This idea that, like, you know, the sins of the fathers get passed on and certain certain actions have consequences in a way that you can't necessarily predict, right? You you decide one day to leave and run away to sea, uh, but you and you know there may be consequences, but the consequences are completely unpredictable and consequences persist far after the original action is gone and forgotten. Absolutely. And like the, the nature of consequences aren't balanced on both sides of the focal point of the consequence, you know, uh, more often than not, someone's experience of event will be much more severe than another person's. Mm. And, and, And in and of that, there is something heavy to grapple with here at the end that he is in a place where he is trying to seek amends, whether or not he's doing it in a way that's good is its own discussion. And his, his partner is not. (laughs) Yeah, basically. (laughs) (laughs) That's the TLDR right there for a page of madness. So join us for our next episode. (laughs) Um, no, I, I think like some people, uh, some people say that this film is not terribly coherent. Um, but actually, I think the more that we've talked about it, the more that we can realize that it's an immaculately structured work. Like mm-hmm. everything about it has been it has been incredibly carefully thought through to the point that they lost what twenty to thirty percent of the original footage, and the film itself is still coherent and still has this through line of psychological interiority uh, and small subtle moments that that kind of really contribute to the overall emotional impact. So I think I think it's really strange that some critics like maybe thought it wasn't the most coherent. It was too weird. It's it's too um, avant garde. But it's it's very experimental in certain ways, technically certainly for the time. But I actually think it's an incredibly uh, deeply thought out exercise in exploring the inner psychology, the inner inner state of individuals in a really fascinating way. I I am going to make an architecture analogy <laughs> for those critics uh, that thought that this movie was not particularly coherent um, because th- th- this movie is like incredibly coherent. You're, you're absolutely right. This is masterfully crafted. Uh, but I think the problem is, is that like I am maybe a significant number of those critics just didn't like Google no theater mask or like put in the effort that this movie is requiring of you because it's a hundred years old. Mm. Um, and it's just like, like imagine if you had seen a Gothic cathedral for the first time ever, you know, it, it looks, it looks weirdly lighter than it should be. It is covered in all these like ornamentations. It doesn't, it visually wouldn't make sense if, if everything you had ever seen in your life was either a parking garage, a McMansion hell, or like, some some like gentrified urban building called like the lofts at the bayside or something you know so like if you're inundating your brain with just like 
you know, g- generic A-list films, a uh, page of madness would be kind of incoherent. But I think that's the, the fault there is 100% not on a page of madness. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, I think it's a good place to end this and the page of madness discussion on a on a joke about uh how shit contemporary architecture is. <laughs> um but what a great film. And uh you know, I know we I know we said we wanted to do more non-anglophone cinema, which we we have definitely done and I think it's definitely worth going back and finding uh as many of these kind of older and even silent films as we can to to add our own uh, continued critical exposition to the history of the development of horror cinema. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs> Spooky.